with that, uh, if you haven't been with us the last three or four weeks, we've been talking about prayer. And um, one of the things we've been looking at and, and trying to kind of focus some attention on is some of the hard questions that are related to prayer and to our prayer lives. Uh, I, I know you guys have had these experiences. Sometimes, uh, you know, we in the vineyard, we, we pray for healing. Healing is a, a big part of what we believe, that, you know, represents the kingdom of God. And we pray for healing. And sometimes you pray for healing and it doesn't happen. In fact, if, you, if you've been in my shoes, sometimes you pray for somebody to be healed and they get sicker, you know. And it's, it's tough like that. Sometimes... Uh, you know, family prays for protection. They go on vacation and they have a car accident. How does that happen? I've, I've known many people, husbands and wives, who uh, have prayed for their marriage and prayed diligently that their marriage would be strengthened and restored, and then they've seen that marriage unravel and fall apart. Um, I know that some of you and countless other people have parents prayed for their kids as their kids grow up and become teenagers and young adults pray that they would just turn their hearts to God and then they've watched those kids walk away from God what's what's the deal with that? How does that happen? We've been looking at prayer, we've been looking at the different elements of prayer and and yet I, I think that we have to be honest and we have to say you know what that's life and those things happen in life and those things happen to Christians and non Christians, those things happen to wonderful incredible, good-hearted, faith-filled, believing people of God. Why is that? Why does it happen? So what we've been trying to do is to look uh, intently, look intelligently, look honestly at Scripture and do our best to wrestle with some of those questions because I think we have to be able to to be honest and, and be authentic in our faith as we do that. Um, a couple things that we've talked about thus far. We've said that, one, it's, it's complex. The answers aren't easy. And, in fact, s- sometimes in some settings there's, a, there's a, a temptation to give sort of a pat answer to those tough questions and that those pat answers, they, they, they really don't make it. They, they really, don't, really don't answer the question. You know, like, for example, somebody might say, well, if you prayed and, and uh, you know, your prayer wasn't answered, well, then it just must not be God's will. And, and, and we know that, that that really doesn't hold up because, well, with the example of praying for somebody to come to the Lord, if you pray for somebody to come to the Lord and they don't, you can't say that's not God's will because we know it's God's will that they would come to him. But if they don't, what happened? Why wasn't that prayer answered? So those things just uh, are, are tough to answer. They're tough to wrestle with. They're hard sometimes to accept and experience in our lives, and we look for ways to try to respond, and we don't, don't always come up with it. A real, a real good answer. We've talked about free will and the fact that that's a, a factor. It's an element in the prayer equation that God's given us free will. I, I said a few weeks ago, God must be very committed to it because it causes so much damage that he, he must really be committed to giving free will or it wouldn't cause so much pain in life. But we know that uh, despite our prayers for somebody, they, they have a will that God's given them and they can take that will and align it with God's will and fulfill his purposes and walk their life out with him or not. They can go another direction with that. Um, We've talked a little bit about spiritual warfare and and some other elements. Last week, we we talked about faith. And um, I want to summarize last week and then move on from there. But in, in 
teaching about faith, we, we learned a few things. One, that faith is an essential element in prayer. And that uh, when we pray, we need to pray with faith. And we need to pray believing that God will answer that prayer. We need to pray boldly and pray with expectation. But that faith needs to be there for our prayers to be answered. We learned that you didn't have enough faith is another one of those pat answers that, that really is an illegitimate answer. And, and I use the example, the, the biblical example, of Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith, the, the heroes of the faith. And, and essentially, if you read the chapter, what it comes down to is this. If the reason your prayer wasn't answered is that you didn't have enough faith, well, then they didn't either because their prayers weren't all answered. And uh, I really do believe that that's a, 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 a hurtful and a guilt-inducing response to a very, very difficult and complex question. Um, we also talked about faith working in community. I, th- and this again, I'll just reiterate, I, I love this part of it. My faith can affect the outcome of circumstances in your life. And your faith can affect the outcome of circumstances in my life. And uh, faith really does work in community. We, we looked at the story of the guys who lowered Jesus through the roof, you know, because he couldn't get there on his own and they couldn't get him to him. And I really felt like God showed me in that story something I'd never seen before, and that was that, that sometimes our faith is, is just that. It's helping our friends get to Jesus when they don't have the strength to get there on their own. And so faith really does work in community, and that's such a powerful reality. The last thing we said is, Lack of faith hinders the advancement of the kingdom. And we, again, looked at that, that bizarro verse where Jesus says he couldn't get much done in his hometown because of their lack of faith. And you go, what? It's Jesus. He can do what he wants. But somehow, uh, beyond my understanding, his, his ability to, to work his purposes in people's lives was hindered by their lack of faith. So tonight I want to kind of continue that and take that... Uh, a little further, and tonight I want to really kind of hone in on uh, some of those hard questions that we've talked about. I want us to to really kind of get to the heart of what what does Jesus mean when he says things like this? I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. He says in uh, Luke's gospel, Truly I tell you, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Well, if those things are true, and if our prayers sometimes go unanswered, what's the deal? So uh, I've titled the message tonight, Fig Trees, Mountains, and Mustard Seeds. And let's pray. Lord, I just pray you would open your word to us tonight. You'd help us to receive. You'd allow us, Lord, the, uh, the minds and the hearts and the spirits to really receive what you have and to delve into faith and prayer and understanding your will and your purposes in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to do something a, a little bit different tonight than I normally do. And that is that I want us to take a look at and I want to talk about how we read the Bible, how we study the Bible, how we interpret what the Bible says. So on, on one hand, I guess this is more of a... Um, uh, kind of a educational or informational sort of message as opposed to an inspirational message. It's more teaching than preaching. But I just think that, uh, again, as we 
really do seek to, to look intently and intelligently and honestly at Scripture to, to really look at how, how do we read it, how do we interpret it, um, so that we can, you know, I mean, let, let's, let's be honest. If, if, um, if Jesus says things like we just read, that our faith can move mountains, that nothing is impossible, that anything we ask for will be done, and that doesn't happen in our lives, what does that mean? What does that mean? And, and I think we need to be able to respond to that. So I want to kind of look tonight at how do we interpret that? How do we view those passages and other passages like that? Um, I don't know anybody. I've been a Christian for, well, a long time. <laughs> I don't know, 45, 40 years? Or something like that. I've never known anybody who had all of their prayers answered, who got everything they asked who found that nothing was impossible as they believed. Um, I've talked to you guys in the past about context and the context of Scripture being important in understanding it. And so as we do kind of this uh, informational thing, I've got a little chart here of context I want you to take a look at. I didn't make that chart, but I like it. It's very helpful. As we study any passage of Scripture, down there at the bottom, the center, is the target text. So whatever text we might be looking at, whether it's from Matthew or Luke, or whether it's from uh, James or Peter or uh, one of Paul's writings or the Old Testament, we, we need to view that text in context, because if we don't, the meaning can be distorted. Now, we know that. You understand that today. Uh, we see that all the time, especially in the political arena, Right? Politician says something, and then the opponent of that politician will take a, a phrase or a sentence that that politician said, and they'll bring it over here and say, we'll see what they say. But in fact, that's not what they say at all. And if you look at that in context, you realize, well, that's not what they intended to say, but that's just what it looks like it says when you remove it from its context. Well, that same thing can happen in Scripture, and, it, and I'll be honest, I think it happens by and large inadvertently. I don't think people do what politicians do and pull those things out of context and try to make them say something different. That might happen. But by and large, I think we tend to just take them out of context, and, and without ill will or you know, ill intent, uh, we, we read them as maybe saying something that they didn't say. So it's important that we understand several levels of context. First of all, the paragraph. Uh, a sentence on its own might, and you guys all understand that, appear to say something it doesn't say. So you want to look at the paragraph around it. What is this author really trying to communicate right there? And then further than that, you want to look at the entire book. What's the message of this book? If the, if the text we're looking at is from, uh, from James, what is James trying to accomplish in writing this letter? Who was he writing it to? What was happening in their lives as he was writing? What was his, what's, his, what's the heart of his message? So I always encourage everybody when you are studying a, a text to really, if you have the time, take the time and sit down and read the whole book through once. Read the whole book through and then go back and study it in depth. So we want to know what the entire book says. And then also in, in the, the larger picture of that author's writings. Now, James uh, might not be as valid because it's just that, that one book. But let's take Paul, for example. Paul wrote... Numerous New Testament books. There might be a, a, a word, a phrase, a sentence that Paul uses that's hard to understand. And one of the ways you can determine what he meant is by looking at where he might have used that same word or phrase or sentence in other places in his writings. What did that word mean to him? What did that sentence mean to him? And then beyond that, of course, in the New Testament, 
and then in the entire Bible. When you get to the entire Bible, what you're really looking at is things like the nature of God. What's God like? And, for example, if, if God is love, and we know God is love, and the entire Bible says that God is love, uh, a verse that doesn't seem as though God is love would probably be out of context. That's probably not what it means, because we know who God is and what he's like. In addition to that, those are all internal. There's, there's external things that we need to look at when we read the Bible as well. Things like geographical, historical, and cultural background. It's, um, it really is important uh, that we understand those things. I think most of you guys are aware that different things have different meanings at different times in history. I think you're also aware that different cultures approach things and say things and respond differently to different things. Even within our own country, if you, if you talk about communication, for example, there are subcultures within the United States. Do you guys know that? <laughs> Some of you do that. On the East Coast, people tend to be uh, very, very brash, very short and quick with their answers, and they sometimes seem abrupt and maybe even a little bit rude to those of us from the Mellow West, right? Uh, but th- that's really not their intent. They don't mean to be abrupt or rude. It's, it's just the way that they communicate. In the South, people are so open and gracious and hospitable. They might be full of crap, but they're open and gracious and hospitable. Now, I'm just saying they might be. They might be. I'm just saying they come across that way. They come across that way. You know, the Northwest, we, we tend to be a little independent-minded, don't we? Anybody agree with that? Anybody think that's true? That's true. I want you to know that. I haven't lived here my whole life. I came here and I found people in the Northwest to be very independent. I still think that uh, whenever I'm driving. Pe- people here drive like they're the only one on the road. I don't get that. But um, Just kidding. Not you guys. It's important that we understand those kinds of things. And it's important that we understand communication and how cultures uh, communicate to one another, um, both historically as well as in a contemporary setting. I, this, to me, I, I, I really have learned a lot. In, in, if, if you've traveled outside the United States at all, uh, you, you find these things. Uh, I've learned a lot in, in, in our work in Nicaragua over the last several years. Um, at our recent conference, we do every year, October, I go to the missions conference in Colorado. All the missions leaders are there. It's, it's really, really a, a powerful event. This year we had an entire track, a series of workshops on cross-cultural communication. And it didn't have anything to do with language, right? Obviously, if you're working in a Chinese-speaking country and you speak English and you don't speak Chinese, that's a problem, okay? Uh, this, this series of courses on cross-cultural communication didn't deal with language barriers at all. It assumed that you could communicate in the language that you're working in. But what it dealt with was um, just ways that people communicate and and different cultural approaches to communication. For example, and this is uh, the one that was like the light came on for me, in in Nicaragua and and in Latin America in general, uh, our Latin American brothers and sisters have a a very passive, non-direct, non-confrontational style of communication. We, as Americans, we don't. We're, we're, we get to the point. We want to get to the point. And so in any number of meetings over the years, um, we'd be talking and strategizing and kind of planning, and somebody would just, you know, toss out an idea. And, and you know, some of our friends would say yes. Kind of nod, yes. 
And so our assumption was, well, that they agree. They want to do that. So we would move forward with that idea. And then down the road, we find out, well, they don't really agree with that. So we'd go back and go, well, you guys don't? No, we don't. And, and we found out that really, to, to really communicate effectively, that we had to slow down. We had to slow down and we had to spend some time really developing relationship and really getting to know one another and really listening and really asking a lot of questions and, and, and really learning uh, to, to, to not just sort of Im, impose things and move forward, but to take the time. And it, it was just a, one of those sort of communication breakdowns that once we learned that uh, was very helpful. So communication is, is different in different places, different cultures, different times. And, and, and so with, with that in mind, you know, when Jesus says things like this, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. What does he mean by that? What, what is it that he's communicating? Now, w- one thing that we need to understand in terms of the culture that Jesus was speaking into is that uh, Jesus was employing here um, a form of speech, a literary device that's used very often, especially in the Middle East. It's, it's used very uh, uh, regularly in the Middle East called hyperbole. And hyperbole is exaggeration for effect. You, you exaggerate something to emphasize a point that you're trying to make. Now, we do this in our country, but we, we do it a little, we use it a little differently. For example, if a um, hard-working man is out working in the field or whatever, I don't know, work, chopping wood, and you come home and you might say to your wife, I- I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. But you don't mean that you're so hungry you could eat a horse. You mean I worked really hard and I'm hungry, I'm really hungry, I could eat a lot of things. But you don't, really mean you could eat a horse. In fact, it's physically impossible for a human being to eat an entire horse in one sitting. can't be done. But when you say that, we understand what that means. We understand that guy's really hungry. He's so hungry he could eat a big horse, even though that's not what he means. If you talk to some friend or relative that lives in California or Arizona, they might say, how's it going? You go, it's raining cats and dogs. But it's not really raining cats and dogs. Cats and dogs aren't falling from the sky. What you mean is it's just raining. It's raining, raining a lot, raining all the time. That's what you mean by that. Parents might say to your children if you're exasperated, I've told you a million times. But the truth is we actually have not told them a million times. We've probably told them three, maybe four or five, maybe ten, but not a million. In fact, I'm going to go out and limit and say no one has ever told anybody anything a million times. Just saying. In the Middle East, this is used a little differently, both today and in the time that Jesus uh, spoke and and was uh, ministering. I'll give you an example. If you were to go to the Middle East today, you would probably at some point go to uh, visit an open-air market and uh, we, don't, we don't really have those kinds of things here as much in, in our culture. We have swap meets, which are sort of like that. Uh, and we have today, I think, more and more kind of farmer's markets are, are happening. But in other parts of the world, um, the open-air market is really the center of commerce. And it's where people will go that, it, it's to, to, to do their business. 
Uh, by and large, especially in poor communities, third world countries, rural communities, transportation is limited. And so you can't go all over the place. So you go to one market and you buy your food, your clothing, your textiles, everything you need there. And those, those markets are really fun to go to. Um, but if you were in the Middle East and you, you went to a market, you, uh, you might see a handmade blanket that's really beautiful. It was handcrafted. And you said, man, I'd love to have that blanket. That blanket would be wonderful to take home as a memento of my trip here. Another thing you would notice in, the, in these open-air markets there is things would not be priced. There would be no prices on them. And the, and the reason is the price is negotiable. Now, we, that's another thing that's a little weird in our culture. We don't do that. We negotiate on big-ticket items. If you're going to buy a home or a car, you negotiate the price. But most of us wouldn't go to Albertsons and haggle over the price of a bell pepper. We, just, just, we don't do that. You don't walk in and go, hey, these peppers are 99 cents, but I, I only want to pay 69 cents. Look at you like, what? No, they're not yet But at this market, the prices wouldn't be fixed and they would be negotiable. And you might say to the vendor, wow, this is a beautiful blanket. I, I'd love to take this blanket home. I, I'll, I'll give you $50 for this blanket. And if you said that, the response back to you would probably be something like this. What? What? How dare you? That's the most insulting offer I've ever heard in the history of the universe. You spit on my mother's grave with that offer. And you would be a little bit unsettled at that, and as a Westerner, you might say, okay, well, I'll, I'll leave now, and you would walk away and not buy the blanket, not realizing at all that what that merchant meant was not that that really was the most insulting offer in the history of the universe, and no, in fact, you really didn't spit on his mother's grave with that offer. What he actually meant when he said that was, I'm sorry, that offer is a little too low. You'll have to try again. But he was employing hyperbole. He was exaggerating his response for effect to make a point. Now, look, I, um, I'm fully aware that we all have different backgrounds. We have different understandings. We, we have different uh, uh, histories in terms of Scripture, biblical interpretation, how that works, I respect that. I, re I respect very much that it could be a challenge for some of you to hear me say that Jesus is speaking hyperbole, uh, to, uh, that he is exaggerating a point to make effect. That might be a little bit of a mind-bender for you, and, and I respect that. And because of that, though, I, I really want to illustrate that this form of communication is used readily and regularly throughout Scripture. Just a few quick examples, and, and we won't take a long time in this, um, but, but I think it's important. If you know Old Testament history at all, you know that after David and Solomon, that the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, in Judah, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and there was no longer one king but two, one on each side of that uh, border, and that there was a long succession on both sides of very, very bad kings, bad kings. The kings by and large exercised their free will and did not lead the people of God in the ways and purposes of God but led them in a different direction. However there were exceptions. Along the way in that long line of bad kings every now and then would be a good king. One of those was King Hezekiah. And it says in 2 Kings 18 that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah either before or after him. Now if you read that text just as we read it tonight in isolation, you would walk away with the understanding that Hezekiah was, in fact, the best king, the best king ever, because no one was like him before 
or after. But if you continue reading 2 Kings, just a few chapters later, you'd come to a passage where Hezekiah's great-grandson Josiah becomes king, and it says of Josiah, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. Wait a minute. It just said there was no one before or after Hezekiah. How could that be? Did the author have a short memory? Was he wrong? Did he get it wrong? Was Hezekiah really not as good as he thought? Now this guy's better. Does the Bible contradict itself? Well, the answer would be no, no, no. Both are true, but what the author's saying there is really not in fact that Hezekiah or Josiah was so good that no one before or after them were ever as good as them. What he's really saying is they were very, very good kings. They were good kings who led the people of the Lord uh, in the purpose and will of God, not against that. Let's look at Proverbs for a minute. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Is that true? You guys don't know. That's not a trick question. That is true. Is it always true? No, it's not always true. How many parents' hearts have been broken? Because they've done all they could to raise their children the ways of the Lord and watch them turn and walk away. Why is that? Well, it's because it's complex. It's because there there are other things involved. Because that child also has a free will given them by God, and they can determine that maybe despite their parents being all they could possibly ever be in terms of raising them up in the proper right ways, I'm going to exercise my free will. I'm going to go do something different. There's outside influences. There's spiritual warfare. There's all kinds of things that can happen. So is that true? Yes, generally that is true. And I would say that if you start your children off in the way that they should go, there's a much greater possibility, probability, that they will walk those ways the rest of their life. But it's not absolute. It's not absolute. That's not a promise, nor is it a guarantee. It's a principle. It's a principle that, by and large, holds true. Look at the New Testament for a minute. Gospel of John, it says, Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Had the whole world gone after him? No, the whole world hadn't gone after him. At what we know is this, at this point in Jesus' ministry, his popularity was increasing exponentially. That everywhere he went, huge crowds of people were beginning to follow after him. And so if you were there, especially if you were a Pharisee and you were watching this take place, you might say, well, the whole world's just going after him. But in fact, the whole world wasn't going after him. A lot of people were. I want to look at Jesus himself for a minute. Your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. Does Jesus mean that? No one believes that Jesus means that. If you believe Jesus means that, you either are psychologically confused or demonized or both? Huh? Well, <laughs> you have no eyes or face. I suppose that's a possibility. What does Jesus mean when he says that? I'll tell you what Jesus means. He means sin is bad. He means sin is very bad for you. He means 
Do whatever you can to separate yourself from sin. Get yourself as far away from it as you can. If there's things in your life that you can do to separate yourself from sin, by all means do those things because sin is very, very bad for you. That's what Jesus means. He doesn't mean cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. He uses hyperbole. He uses exaggeration to drive home a point, to to make his point stronger. Jesus did this a lot. He said to the Pharisees at one point, you swallow gnats and strain out camels. Strain out gnats and swallow camels. And what he meant by that was, you guys, you get hung up on these little details, but you miss the big picture. He said to his followers, if you don't hate your mother and father, you're not fit to be my disciple. Did he mean you need to hate your mother and father? No. What he meant was, you really need to put me first. I'm way up here and everything else is down here. That's how it goes. He told stories about people trying to help their neighbor get a speck of dust out of their eye while they're walking around with a huge board in their own eye. He very often would exaggerate a point to emphasize the point that he was trying to make. Now, a couple of things, just we'll, we'll close here. But first, I want to say this. This is important. The the fact that the authors of Scripture employ hyperbole doesn't make it any less true. The the fact that what they're saying may or may not be literal or absolute doesn't make it any less true. In fact, if you follow what they're doing, the opposite is true. The fact that they used hyperbole means that they really wanted to exaggerate their point to make sure you understood what they were trying to say. So it doesn't make it any less true. It's still true. It just may not be literally true true. Let's get back to the mustard seed for a minute. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying this. First of all, faith is really, really important when you pray. Faith is important. When you pray, pray with faith. Pray believing in me. Pray believing that I can do what I say I'm going to do. And he also, I think, is saying this. I think he's saying, you know what? Even if you don't feel like you have a very lot of faith. I I want you to know that the faith that you have, even if it seems so small, can really accomplish big things. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus means when he says it. He's saying, when you pray with faith, know that God hears your prayers, God acknowledges your prayers, that he's there with you in them. I, I want you guys to know, anybody that's ever prayed and had your prayers go unanswered, I, I want you to know that you didn't have a faith. Enough faith is an illegitimate answer. But that's not the case. It's not your fault. If you prayed for things that didn't happen, I want you to know right now it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Faith is a, a very, very important component in prayer, but it's not the only component in prayer. I, I'm going to, after tonight, I'm going to take a break for a couple weeks and look at some Christmas-related things. But I'm going to come back to this one more time after Christmas because I I really want us to understand how complex prayer is, how powerful prayer is, and and, and really what it means to press into prayer even when our prayers seem as though they're falling on deaf ears because they're not. But I'll just, I want to close with this. Sometimes we ask for an egg and it feels like we get a scorpion. And here's what I want you guys to, to hear tonight more than anything else is when that happens we don't know why we don't know why that happens 
We, we just don't know why. And, and I think there's a lot of pressure on us. And I, I'll be honest, I think it's warfare. I think it's the enemy applying pressure that we're supposed to have the answers. I think as Christians, we feel sometimes like we have to have all the answers. I, I had a lady one time was visiting our church. I remember this very clearly. It was years ago. She came up to me after the service, and she asked me one of those questions. I don't remember the specific question, but it was one of those kinds of, you know, really hard questions. And I said, you know, gosh, I just, I don't know. I don't know. And she kind of got huffy and said, well, you know, don't you think as a pastor that you should know, that you should have an answer to these things? I just smiled at her. I, I didn't say what I wanted to say. But what I wanted to say was, well, I am a pastor, but I'm not God. And, I, and I'm, I'm pretty confident God knows, but I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure God knows. I'm sure God has the answer to those questions, and someday maybe we'll be able to ask him about them. But right now, there's some things that are mysterious. God's bigger than us, and <clears throat> sorry, but he's smarter than us, and we don't have all the answers. And I want you guys to know it's, it's okay to say, I don't know. I think when our friends go through difficult times, when our friends cry out and we cry out with them and we pray with them and our prayers don't come to pass, I I think we feel pressure to try to give them an answer and say, you know, this is what happened. But the truth is, it's okay to say, I don't know. You you say, you know what, I love you and I'm going to go through this thing with you. Whatever happens, I'm going to walk through it with you. I'm so sorry this happened, but I don't know why it happened. I just don't know why. And it's okay. I want to give you the freedom to be able to say, I don't know. God's big and God's mysterious, and sometimes I don't get it, but I trust him anyway. And my, my hope and my intent in this whole series is not to discourage you from prayer at all, but to encourage you in prayer. That it, th- There's a freedom in saying, you know what? God's bigger than me, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do what he says, even though I might not know the end result of that all the time. So let's, let's stand, and we'll close. Um, I just want to pray for healing. Uh, where's John? John, would you? Are you here? Where are you? Would you play guitar? Just play something. Play something pretty. Can you do that? Um, I just want to pray for you guys for a moment, and, and I want to pray that. I just earlier tonight when we were, some of the words that came. You know, we're talking about healing. We're, we're related to healing, and I. I know that God wants us to continue to pray for healing in our fellowship. And I know that at times it's hard. It's hard to continue to pray for healing when we pray and people don't get healed. And it's hard to pray for healing when uh, you, just, you, you, you lose faith. But I just know that God wants us to. And I just want to pray for faith tonight that we'd be able to press in and continue to seek Him for those things. Tell me, open your heart, hearts and just raise your hands. Kind of receive them. Lord, we, we believe that you're a God who heals. We, we, don't, we don't believe that the stories are there just to confuse us and perplex us. Lord, we believe they're there to encourage us and cause us to press into you. And that's what we want to do. Our heart's desire is to seek you for healing. So, Lord, like, uh, like that centurion, we, we pray again tonight, Lord. We believe, help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith when we lack faith, Lord. And and grant us the grace to press into you. I just feel like um, this week we're supposed to 
press in to prayer for healing. And, and I don't know if there's people you've prayed for recently or in the past, and maybe you've given up, but I just want to encourage you this week to pray for them again. And, and, I, and I, I know, I don't mean just in your own prayer time. I, I think you're supposed to see people, call them up, go over, get together with them and just say, I want to pray for you. And pray for healing. And that's physical healing as well as other areas of healing. I think there's relational and emotional healing. I think there's some other things, but I just want to encourage you guys this week as, as the Lord leads you, as you hear from His Spirit to open your hearts and just say, Lord, show me and, and, and allow those things to stir in your mind again and to have the faith to step out and pray.